Hello and welcome to Conversations from the ANF podcast. In this episode, I speak to adoptive parent Emily and she shares her experience of an allegation investigation and the impact upon her family. It's a difficult story to listen to, but it's not uncommon for adoptive families to find themselves caught up in complex processes with police and local authority safeguarding teams. As such, it's an important topic that Emily shines a light on. As always, if you've experience of adoption, fostering or special guardianship from any perspective, personal or professional, and would like to share that on the podcast, please do get in touch through the Facebook or Twitter page, or you can email us at andfpodcast.com. So I'm Emily. I'm a proud adoptive mum to two amazing little kiddies. Um, me and my husband adopted um, toddlers, siblings uh, during lockdown. Um, almost three years ago now. Um, it feels very hard to imagine life without them. Um, we are just living a life in technical, having two amazing little kiddies in our lives, something that we um, longed to have for many years through quite a long uh, journey uh, with infertility. We're um, quite accustomed to um, grief and going through hard times, which I think has helped us through our journey um, recently with false allegations. Um, to give you a little bit of a, an idea about our family, we haven't spent a night away from our kiddies since they moved in. We haven't spent a day away from them. Um, we um, provide a really stable, loving home for them to help them feel safe. And part of that it for my son is giving him daily routines, that are similar boundaries and rhythms that are the same um, to help them settle, to help them feel safe, to help them thrive, which has just been such a, an amazing experience to see that happen. Um, and all this was was undone at the start of this year, sadly. Prior to January, um, we had no major concerns, no worries or incidents with our kiddies other than some medical problems. Um, our kiddies, we would have said, were well-attached, happy, thriving, um, nothing to make us feel like um, false allegations was something that would even have been on our radar. Um, as you know, adoptive parents are parenting plus. So we are, even before we become parents, we're well trained, we're vetted, we're scrutinised. We have enhanced DBS checks, interviews, assessments and medicals. Every part of our personal life is analysed and we are well versed in safe care. Our kids are well versed in self-safe care boundaries that you put in place to protect them and yourselves. Doing I was going to ask and- you. So just yes. to interrupt, because I think that safe care is a, a phrase that I'm really familiar with, but it's quite a specific terminology, isn't it? So can you kind of explain where that comes from and what, what do you mean by that? Yeah, so safe care, we did it in our training, our adoption training, and it was, um, I always imagine it as a Lego wall. I'm quite a visual person. Um, safe care is providing real basic foundations. So the the um, shelter of a home, the food on a plate, um, the, the bedtime, the um, interaction as you go further up the wall, it's all the intricate things, the reading stories, the um, eye contact, the the loving nurture, the rocking, all the mother tongue and all this kind of nurturing, loving, supportive things that um, I was really lucky to receive as a child. Um, our children, you know, it's part of their life storybook. We, we created a little visual to help them understand this is what safe care looks like. Um, you know, you have love, you have nurture, you have safety, you have food. When children go um, into care, those basic foundations of just food and shelter um, and safety aren't met. Um, and it's why, you know, as part of your adoption training, you have to understand the route that children come into adoption through. Mm. They come through neglect, they come through trauma. Um, and that helps you, that training helps you understand kind of what we can do to help them feel safe, help them thrive. Um, it's a really important part of kind of um, as our world, as, as parents to help our children feel that. And for them to know, <laughs> our little girl, when she plays with a baby doll and her brother like throws it across the room, she'll, she'll go, that's not safe care. I mean, there's a language in our family, which you wouldn't hear in another family, because that's very much part of you know our existence to to help them understand you know you didn't have safe care and that wasn't your fault but that's what mummy and daddy does mummy and daddy keeps you safe um so you know that is very much a part of our language and and our kids understanding um but nothing that um nothing in our training or research could have prepared us for for what we went through this um 
this false allegation, it's sadly, we've talked about this, it's um, one in four foster carers go through it. Um, and it's something that wasn't in our radar to the point where at Christmas time, I read a book called The Trauma and Informed Classroom by Rebecca Brooks, brilliant book. Yeah. And there is a chapter on false allegations. <laughs> and, and I skipped it thinking, that doesn't really, you know, it's not going to happen to us kind of thing. That's not really appropriate. I'll just skip that bit. Um, and that pretty pretty much that whole chapter became our blueprint when it did happen, that it helped us explain exactly what my daughter was going through, helped me kind of understand the reason why we are in this place and what we can do to help her. Um, and so at the beginning of January, it played out like this. I went to pick up my daughter normal time from school and I was told at school pick up in front of other parents I couldn't take my child home and it was just like your normal routine in your world just comes crashing around you like what on earth is going on been told there was a disclosure and that was pretty much it um, and I had to wait at school um, my daughter was at school for three and a half hours um, with no thought given to the effects of uh, keeping a child away from her mum in those scary initial hours, surrounded by police in uniform, DCs, and you know, there with the badges on, social workers, a room full of strangers, or how re-traumatizing it would be for a previously looked after child to be taken away from the school in a stranger's car, um, or from for my son to be in the house with police officers coming into the house. Um, I'd said that you know he needed routine, he needs boundaries, he needs yeah. that kind of that not you know like that safety was just taken away from us that night um our daughter didn't see um her loving father again for 38 days um 38 days for a five-year-old is a long time 38 days she had to wait um sorry so 29 days she had to wait for a police interview and a police assessment and a further 12 days we had to wait um, before the DC allowed contact. And when we kept on questioning, why do we have, we've done the, the interview, there's been no disclosure. Why do we have to wait a further 12 days for her to see a dad? We were, we found out it's because the DC was going on holiday. And, and that's when the words, you know, who was really looking after and fighting for my children? Because it's, mm. it's not the professionals we were dealing with. They, they couldn't give two hoots about the kids. They had a job to do. They didn't care if they went on holiday. And this child hadn't seen her father for 38 days. This is her fifth primary caregiver that had just disappeared from her, her life. We were told not to explain in, in that period of time why daddy wasn't at home. Just say daddy's working away. Well, daddy doesn't work away from home. Daddy's there every single day. So we weren't given the language to even know what to say we were told to say nothing because we didn't want to kind of confuse her she's going to go through an interview um and it took a further 72 days um for our family to be reunited and that's only because we took them to court basically and um, throughout the whole of this process we felt and still do to some aspect very much in the dark about what was said and what's going to happen and the time frames in it um, and I would have never allowed this situation to play out the way it did on that day at school with the knowledge I now have, which is obviously the reason I want to do this podcast, because I want other people to kind of have false allegations on their radar in the hope that someone somewhere yeah. would start to address the policies and the procedures that need changing in order to protect vulnerable children like ours. Um, hopefully by listening to my story, it will help someone because when we were going through this, there was nothing I could find anywhere about another adopter who'd gone through a false allegation. And the fact it happens to one in four foster carers is really interesting because I think the data is probably similar for adopters, but we just don't have that. Um, I have asked for that to be one of the questions on the adoption barometer because I think it helps to know this isn't an experience that you're going through on your own. Um, yeah. There's a lot of shame surrounding it um you know you feel embarrassed to talk about it the amount of professionals police a district judge who said to me well you know why would she say it if it hadn't happened to her but the data is there to explain it um you know within a few miles of where we live we found out there were two other adoptive families who were going through exactly what we're going through um 
but without that that knowledge you know without people being open and honest about it you do feel like you're going through it on your own um I looked into I'm a researcher that's my way of coping with stressful situations and I was you know handling two children going through trauma real trauma <laughs> me going through trauma trying to parent single-handedly trying to keep all the the routine the same going to do the school run all of that and I'd come home at night and I would be on the computer till late at night because I wasn't sleeping just reading up reading up reading up um found the data that shows that many children who experience neglect and trauma demonstrate difficulties in sequencing so the order of things telling what you know clear narrative what is fact what is fiction um our daughter did that she always used to talk about stories like it really happened when it was in a movie or in a book she'd read um children who've experienced neurological differences have minimal cause and effect thinking emotional development delay muddled memories you know when i read up about this it can be something in the past events that are happening in the here and now so false allegation might actually be a historical event um, or even an unconscious need to reject the carer. In the case of my daughter, we you know she's young. She's a little bit emotionally delayed. She's experiencing what lying is like for the first time. What are the causes and the effects of that? You'd think the teachers would understand that's part of her developmental age, but no. Mm. And she told an elaborate storytelling to gain attention from her teacher, um, to gain sympathy from a teacher when she was frightened at school and. Our kids, that's being seen has kept them alive, you know, through trauma by being seen. And so that is a learned behaviour that's played out in the classroom, but is not understood by professionals. So, you know, my my magic wand would say, well, we need to ensure that there are procedures and policies in place that have this knowledge of trauma, that they are informed in trauma when they're writing it. They're writing the procedures and, and um, policies with looked after children and adoptive children in mind, there's no one size fits all approach to safeguarding. And, and that's where we fell through the cracks. Mm. Um, we need to ensure children of teachers and professionals are trained in, you know, ACEs and um, acute childhood um, experiences and um, well-versed in attachment needs. And this is a really simple thing. It's called TED, tell me, explain it, describe it. If that, you know, had just been used on the day to get that context. My daughter, they'd been able to work out she was explaining a really innocent story using inappropriate words because she innocently was just fabricating the story to get that attention. Um, tell me, explain it, describe it is all it takes to kind of get that context. And you, you realize as a parent, you do that all the time, you know, if your kid is arguing, you're trying to work out who's telling the truth. You kind of, you become a little detective. You go, oh, this yeah. is an interesting story. You, you kind of, without leading them, you will let them explain what's happening. And, and, and that was denied my child on the night. And that would have, you know, stopped it escalating so rapidly and re-traumatizing them. And the other thing we need to equip ourselves as parents. So, um, you know, we've got the training and the knowledge of what to do if this happens, to know what our rights are, which sadly were denied me on the night, and to prevent, prevent our children from being re-traumatised by procedures um, and by professionals whose only concern isn't our children's welfare, but is only actually covering their own backs. And that's what we found time and time and time right. again <laughs> with all of this. I'm pulling a face because I, I kind of... Uh... I know exactly what you mean, but I'm kind of, re uh, do you think that, is it as stark as that? Because that's a really black and white it's, it is, statement. It is, it is really black and white. And it's, um, we obviously had to get legal advice as the longer this was drawn out, went on and on and on. Um, and that was the first thing um, the solicitor said to us, that you're going through this and it feels, you know, and it's horrendous. You've got all these emotions and, I want you to understand that, that the professionals you're dealing with are only covering their own backs. And that sentence stayed with me because in every instance, and I'll go through a couple of them in a minute, every instance, that's what we discovered. You know, police, police DI, who's in charge of the investigation, um, made so many decisions that weren't in the best interest of our children. And you're thinking, well, well why is she doing this? Well, she's covering her own back. Well, the school, why didn't they do tell me, explain it, describe it? Why didn't they get context behind mm. what she was saying? Why didn't they ask me, is this something, you know, I'm not someone who 
who's unknown to the school like they know me they see me every day I'm not somewhere my child was on you know a, a risk register like why didn't they kind of give me the opportunity to to find out what the disclosure was and talk about it and see if this was, you know, a past experience, a lived experience, something that, you know, where it's come from. And the reason was they have boxes to tick to ensure that nothing can come back on them. So time and time again, you're seeing professionals, you know, even the social workers. And I know <laughs> I'm, I'm no. cautious about saying this because this is. No, no, um, go, go for it. <laughs> but, um, you're dealing with professionals who have a massive workload, who are overstretched, who are constantly seeing case after case after case coming through of emergencies. So I get all that, but there were decisions made mm. with us that you just know aren't putting our children's interest at heart. And that's often because the procedures and policy they've got in place don't actually ever use the word false allegations so I went through the school's safety um, policy safeguarding policy the local authority safeguarding policy the police section 17 section 47 nothing has the word false allegation in it so when you come up against a family you're saying well this hasn't happened um I was treated as um compliant in abuse um because I wasn't listening to the voice of the child so as an adopter you're always told you're your child's best advocate. Um, mm. You know your child your best. Suddenly going through safeguarding and and you're the risk factor and the strangers, you're the professionals, are the ones who know your child best. And it was really, really hard to deal with yeah. it. And you're going through such emotions and yet by showing emotion, you're seeing as emotional and that's also a risk factor so yeah. you're just in this cycle I've, where you're just not winning <laughs> it's true i mean you're raising some really fascinating points and i'd never thought of it um, i'm just going to take back a, a minute or two where you mentioned um well firstly i'd like i think i'm not here to argue the point right so i'm not here to kind of dismiss you but kind of just to explore some of the things you're saying because i think there's it's really interesting so my experience of, of working in a safeguarding environment is that mm. It's not always that people are necessarily covering their backs. It's it's sometimes it's an anxiety of getting it wrong, and yeah. so that removed and it coming back on you. Well, yeah, not necessarily coming back on you, but just getting it wrong. And yes, was ultimately that then coming back on you, but also wanting to get it right. And I think that people, um, in that case, people become really risk averse. So they yeah. they they're really reluctant to. Um, it takes a real confidence and self-assurance to go, I think this is fine. Um, and I had an example of that. Um, I'll be careful what I say because it's a, you know, it's it's a situation I was involved in as a professional. And there was mm -hmm. one professional who just said, I think this is okay. And sort of was able to just sort of to hold the moment and sort of avert exactly what you'd say happening. Mm. Just to able to, someone with confidence and experience to able to go, I know what the policy says, but I think we've got enough here to say this is okay. What we'll do is this mm. and this and this, but we're not going to press the nuclear button. Um, and do and you think that comes with experience? Yeah, and also yeah, experience, self-assurance, confidence, um, mm. which maybe is – So I think there's very much – there is a sense of people not wanting to get it wrong, but also people – I think there will always be people who want to go, I don't want it to be my fault if it goes wrong. Um, yeah. which is the exact opposite of that. Um, and the next thing is that really sort of piqued my interest. You talked about um, false allegations. And I thought, well, yeah, we have a box for allegations and we have a box for malicious allegations, mm. but we don't really have a box for allegations that are just confused or, yeah. Yeah. or, or murky or, or, or a wrong take yeah. on a situation or a child who speaks with absolute sort of self-belief, but is talking utter gobbledygook yeah. nonsense fairy yeah. tale. Yeah. Yeah. And there's a terminology used in adoption called crazy lying. Now it's yeah. not an official term. Um, crazy lying is is something that most people who've worked with adopted or children who've gone through trauma and ACEs come across where, you know, for whatever reason there is, you know, this attention seeking um, driven um, lie you know, at the root of it, it comes out of fear. Um, 
But when you're looking at policies and processes, I was like, if one in four foster carers go through false allegation, why does a word not exist in any safeguarding procedure or policy? There was nothing for us to guide us through this process. There was yeah. no one in this process to guide us through. And 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 I think, sadly, this process has, has given me a fear of professionals um, yeah. because we we have seen the police lie to us um we've seen social workers be you know unhelpful and um sneaky is the best word i would describe it in some of the things that have, have happened without going into detail um we have um just seen a callous disregard for my child's well-being within the school um and it is it has taken away that trust that I had um within the system and not just me my children as well and I think that's really hard my children um saw firsthand the police lying and and we were in a car we're driving past a past the police car and they go look there's the baddies <laughs> just like it kind of it always gets yeah. me every time I hear that because actually that is their lived experience their lived experience is the police came they took their loving father away they didn't get to see him for like three months they are baddies to our children and so we we trying to go well everybody's got decisions to make that are good or bad decisions mm. um and and you know, we know from looking at the news pretty much every day, there are quite a lot of police that are making bad decisions every day. So it's not a yeah. bad uh, concept for your children to grow up with. Police aren't the trustworthy kind of um, pillar of society that they once were for a lot of us. Um, my children have learned that as a very young age. And mm. we hope that, you know, the the more positive experience that they have that will kind of change that. Um but there is, you know, I think within safeguarding policies and processes, um, there is nothing to protect or acknowledge looked after children's neurological differences. And that was one of the things that I, uh, you know, countless things that I've read. Um, and I'm not someone who does, you know, 60 page documents, but I was pretty much eating them up every night where you're looking for the word false allegation. You're looking for the word looked after. You're looking for, you know, the things that you can you can draw on to say, well, this is actually what what should be happening and um, what I actually found was our school's own safeguarding policy permitted more stringent handling for looked after children which pretty much gave them free reign to re-traumatize our kids because if you can be kind of more stringent with them and 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 you know they've had a you know maybe a a past history with neglect or trauma or abuse then yeah. yeah let's expedite this as quickly as possible let's ensure you know these these children are protected but without kind of making sure there are things to actually protect them it just it it it's such a strange thing to to go through what i've gone through and then read the safeguarding policy and think there will be situations where looked after children you know yeah are at risk and i understand why why that is in place but what happens you know if actually by following these procedures and processes you're actually re-traumatizing them and that's what happened with my, my daughter sadly that you're putting a child who's already lost for um primary caregivers um in a room full of professionals you know she's little there's yeah. my my parental um rights to be in that room were denied me um even though i was not part of any you know disclosure that she said um put in a car with strangers um for me the the moment when i absolutely lost it was my daughter we'd waited four long weeks for my daughter to be assessed and interviewed um and she comes home and she you know without telling me she just expects her daddy to be home and she just falls apart that night, screaming, sobbing, crying. I had to rock her for an hour while she was crying. Um, and you've just got no words. You have no mm. words to this little girl to explain, you know what? Your daddy's not coming home. I don't know when your daddy's coming home. You did everything right. You did a, a lovely job. You were so brave talking to the police officers today. Um in her head, daddy would be home and daddy wasn't home. Daddy wasn't home for 72 days. And and um, all those attachments, all those, you know, bonds of trust and love that you've spent the last three years building up 
all the words that you've said, you know, daddy's always here, daddy's always here. <laughs> you just, you see them eroding before your very eyes and you see a child who was thriving, going through psychological harm, doing things, you know, really regressing um, self-harm and doing things that are so traumatic to see your child and you're, you just, you're at a loss as to what to do. And, mm. and there wasn't that kind of support there for us. Um, there wasn't any statutory time frame of when things should be done. A child shouldn't have to wait four weeks for an interview um, and and up to a year for a mobile phone um, analysis. Yeah. Um, preventing families from being reunited, you know. Um, surely in cases where you're dealing with children, those those time frames need to be a couple of days, not a couple of months, and definitely not a year or more than a year. Um, and that that sadly is the case. So um, the police aren't following advice from the commissioner about triaging mobile phones in cyber kiosks. This is really important. When I read up this, I was just like, you know, part of the heartache we went through is we had to wait so many months for a phone to be checked. Our phone wasn't part of disclosure. Our child doesn't have a mobile phone. This was a tick box exercise. Yeah. We have to check a phone. But there are cyber kiosks within police stations where they can check them quickly. And the advice is to do that. Um, the forensic checks on a mobile phone, they have a backlog. Um, so I've written here that um, in August 2022, there were 25,000 devices waiting to be examined with some forces. That was over a year. So if you're talking about the police saying, yeah, they've got the rights to... Um, follow all lines of inquiries and that might be checking a mobile phone but but do it in a way that doesn't cause harm to that family and stop them from being reunited for over a year and that's mm. ultimately why we had to go to court you can't have a family waiting for over a year to have a mobile phone checked when it's not part of a disclosure it's the child hasn't got a mobile phone you're just doing it to just ensure but you could do that as easily in a cyber kiosk because you could wait 12 months for it to be forensically mm. analyzed and that that was the advice from the information commissioner's office, um, but it 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 isn't being you know done day to day in the police I mean, stations. I mean, it, um, it's all remarkable when you think in terms of where we sort of pay a lot of lip service to being child centred. You know, the the welfare and the rights of the child are paramount. Yeah, um, yeah. And schools, I mean. In, in lots of regards, we are incredibly child-centred, but sometimes these bureaucratic things sort of grow and build into these monsters that are really, mm. these beasts that have to be served, when sometimes yeah. it feels like really common sense um, approaches would work. I mean, I have a sort of a hypothetical question for you. How how do you think your situation, and again, not wanting to um, sort of compromise your confidentiality and those kind of things, in another world, how do you think your situation should have been sort of handled? You know, yeah, really, it, it should have been handled within, I would say, maybe five minutes. I get a phone call, so it's not done at pickup. It's been a situation, Emily, come down to the school just to prepare you. It is a disclosure. We want to discuss it with you privately. Go down, talk in a private setting with the you know, designated safeguard lead of the school. As soon as I did hear what the disclosure was about, I immediately knew my daughter was referencing a really innocent game using words that were inappropriate and innocently inappropriate. She doesn't really know what it is. Um, I since found out the school had been doing a book um, called Poo Bum, which on every page, the words poo and bum, poo and bum. So, of course, what are the kids playing? They're playing poo bum, bum games in the, in the playground. You start to get a picture of what's going on yeah. in this classroom. And you just, I cannot believe that the school didn't just allow me, warrant me, knowing me, knowing I'm an adoptive parent, I've gone through all these checks. I'm a safe, caring, loving child, my cha um, parent. My child hasn't shown any signs of, you know, yeah. <laughs> abuse, yes. basically, in yeah. a, which, you know, you would play out at home and in, in school. So bring me down, chat to me. And, and allow me or do it in front of me and record it. Just ask my child, tell me more about this, explain it, describe it. Is anything hurty happened to you at home? Is mm. anything worrying? You know, open questions which are allowed. You're not investigating it, but you're allowing that child to talk. 
And I know that my daughter would have, you know, I know, I know, I know I do have a storytelling daughter. She's amazing. She's, you know, theatrical and um, inspirational and creative. Um, but just like she tells me, oh, mommy, I don't want to go to school today because my teacher's hand- handing out poisonous apples. And you can go, well, that's interesting because what happens when you eat a poisonous apple? Do you, do you fall down and die? Well, you look like you're being okay. You're looking, you're looking like you're feeling healthy today. You're not falling down and die. You know, you do that kind of like that pace model where you're just being playful. playful and you're yeah. yeah, all of that. You let it play out. And so a situation could have been handled within a few minutes and instead it was escalated so dramatically because a safeguarding policy allowed them to do that for a looked after child um, to the point where you know my children are being re-traumatized and everything we've worked on with them for three years to build up that safety that trust that love and that nurture is just being eroded before your very eyes and mm. it it has it it has completely destroyed my trust in the school. Be honest, my kids are going to a different school in September. Um, it would be now if I I could get you know the, the school they're going to to have an extra space, but that's not going to happen until September. But it's made me also very very aware of um, when you're choosing a school, make sure you know you've got um, good communication with the staff. You're going for a school which has trauma informed staff has got a designated safeguard lead who is experienced with looked after children. Mm. Now, there's a long list that I've created of all the things that, you know, I, I now know to look for. I now know to talk to talk to the teachers about my child's way of sequencing, you know, fact from fiction and, and storytelling and, and how to kind of, how to do tell me, explain it, describe it if she does, you know, certain things like that. There's a, there's so much I have learned from this. Um, but it is just a shame that you have to, you know, hindsight's a great thing, isn't it? Well, yeah. And um, I, I'm conscious as well. You've talked a lot about children, which makes perfect sense. But I'm conscious of your husband, who's not, he's not talking. Um, but yeah. he was removed for seventy-two days, seventy plus days. Seventy-two days, yeah. Um, and how is, how is he, and how was he? <laughs> He is next door working at the moment, otherwise he would be on the call with us. Um, he's he's doing remarkably well. There were very, very dark moments in the last mm. few months for us both. I think, um, yeah, you know, there's it, what's scary about safeguarding is it doesn't take a lot. And, and this is, you know, going through this, we've seen this. It doesn't take a lot for you to be arrested. It doesn't take a lot for you to not be able to come back to your family home and mm. it doesn't take a lot actually for you to realize that my daughter's going to be interviewed my daughter hasn't told the truth and and she's going to be interviewed and videoed by the police and and I could be going to jail and 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 that rocks your world doesn't it because you know my husband is such a doting loving caring gentle kind um amazing father and um, I'm so grateful that this hasn't changed his relationship with our kids. He's yeah. still got that bond. He's still got that um, nurture. We understand, you know, the innocence of my daughter um, and and why, you know, she didn't have the support to help her through this experience that she deserved. Um, she didn't have the, the trauma-informed staff to, to give her that kind of mm. – um, level of nurture and love that she needed um, at, at a vulnerable time when stuff was going on in the classroom that she found worrying. Um, what about what about you? I'm aware that yeah, um, you know, you're keeping the ship running. Oh, uh, as yeah. a solo carer, you're managing this complex situation, and probably you, you're helping your husband who's isolated. You're, you're probably keeping him his. Yeah, and you're being the communicator between all the family members as well. Mm. So, um, it, I, I don't know how I did it. We're resilient as a couple. We've gone through hardship. We've gone through, you know, uh, we've been married 17 years, so we are a strong unit. Um, I think, uh, you know, I, I lost a stone in a in a couple of weeks. I wasn't eating. I wasn't sleeping. The the turmoil as you're seeing your beautiful children going through trauma and seeing the, the physical effects on them every day and they're not sleeping and you're not sleeping and after a couple of months of doing this I, I took them out of school and and took them to my parents house um just the 
the relief from doing that, having that support, someone to get up with them early if you haven't slept, someone to cook for you, do the washing, um, someone to, you know, you're going from parenting two traumatised children just on your own to having, like, just lots of adults there who just love them and dote on them. And that was, I kind of wish I'd done that sooner. Um, Mm. That definitely, I'd got to breaking point at that point when I'd done it. I was trying to keep everything regular and normal those boundaries those rhythms of life and it I couldn't hold on any longer to that um so thankfully my mum um is a retired teacher and she helped me homeschool them it was an insight into homeschooling which I'll have to say hands up to anybody who does that <laughs> because that is hard hardcore um but we were able to adapt kind of our our routines what we found was after seeing uh, we were able you know at the end of of, of March to have contact the logistics of that um, were very very difficult with my husband living at his parents which is far away and having to drive down or have to drive up we were allowed supervised contact with grandparents which sounds great if they're down the road but if they're 100 miles away not so easy mm. um, so logistically that was difficult and tiring and and all the rest of it um, so being able to stay at one of the grandparents houses actually logistically helped um and yeah just enabled us to have rather than a day together like a weekend together with my husband staying in like um, a b&b down the road yeah um the the importance of network you know your 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 support network it just was so paramount going through something like this um you know this safeguarding issues can actually lead to people losing their jobs and and yeah. thankfully my husband was in a position where he could work from home, wherever that home was. He had people in his office who had family members who were adopted parents. So there was understanding there. Um, so that that was, you know, really helpful. So there's some things that could have been more stressful, which um, were easier because because of that. And just yeah. having, you know, the, the support support of family and friends just definitely got us through it um people praying for us people just yeah sending us little notes and little parcels of cake (laughs) yeah yeah because there's part of you that you just want to protect your child and protect your family unit from people knowing what's going on but um there's only so long you can do that there's only so long you can tell your child that daddy's working at grandma and granddad's house it it, you can't go on for that for that period of time with um kind of that level of of pressure and and you you're always telling your children to be truthful and you've got to try and find out you know you're you're not yeah, with professionals you're giving you the language to tell your children you know what to say or how to say it and so you you're trying to do we were told um by a counselor you know just tell your children what is concrete well actually like there was very little concrete at that time so you could have food at six o'clock that's that's concrete you know like as much as you're getting yeah we went very much back to when you're doing transitions as adopters um kind of those therapeutic things those really really Mm. helped so we had little videos of daddy telling bedtime stories so when our kiddies couldn't see their daddy that they could watch him doing bedtime stories and, and keep that rhythm themselves doing bedtime stories at the same time every day but doing it on a um on a video and lots of little things like that so the the rockings are um kind of putting lotion and, and smoothing and and when you haven't got the words just having that tactile nurture to kind of soothe the hurt became mm. really really important in kind of helping your child through like such such heartache really i mean yeah it it sounds and i know from you know personal experience and from the experience of other families that i know that it is a it's a life-altering experience yeah genuinely and so you're now back together as a family and what how has that left you are you all you know is it just is it it must have has it altered you or are you kind of just resetting and and yeah life when you've got little kiddies life just goes on doesn't it so you you, you're back together and and it's all the normal routines of of life and I think it then suddenly crops up so we went on holiday um together just in the UK and we went with my husband's parents um you obviously my kids 
whenever they saw my husband, it was always with his parents for the past three months. And at the end of the holiday, we relaxed and we had such a great time. And my littlest goes, is daddy coming home with us? And my heart just broke. So I thought, oh my goodness, I'm not kind of prepped and daddy is coming home. He'd only been yeah. home about two weeks before that. Um, daddy is coming home. But because all the time he'd seen my husband was at his parents' house, having his parents on holiday with us, which of this holiday was but like a year ago, um, it was always going to be the case. It just reminded him of daddy's going back to live with grandma and granddad. So it's like little things like, um, he'll check to see daddy's in bed in the morning. Um, they very much follow him around a lot. Um, my daughter strokes his his arm at dinner time. He's seeing just this kind of um don't know how to describe it, this this need for him to always be there, probably. The yeah. my daughter's very much like his little shadow. Um, reattaching almost. Reattaching, yeah. And I think that's gonna take um time um the the trust element for us um you know has disintegrated with the school and so we've we've got to build up trust and attachment with a new school and our kiddies have got to go through obviously as adopters you don't want change for your children um our kiddies have got to go through the change of a new school and that's going to be difficult for them mm. um new friendships and things like that um yeah, and and we're just we we are getting hopefully some support through adoption support fund, but for where are we now? May for five months we've had nothing, and I don't think that's good enough. Well, I think was... to go through this trauma is, yeah. is it's amazing that there hasn't been anything. And I had read on um, a Facebook group that you know one of uh, I'd, I kind of asked if anybody had been through something like this, and a couple of people had said yes, and. I'd asked if it affected their relationship with schools and they said yes. And some people had homeschooled and some people had sought a new school. And um and I've completely lost my train of thought. I'm sorry. <laughs> you, were, you were saying you were talking in terms of adoption support, and I was quite curious yeah, about that, that because it. I yeah, I am um, that was it. My it's interesting because I've been speaking to Fiona Wells and we've been talking a lot about this and we're talking to different people. Uh, and that's one of the things that we're asking a lot of people is you know how does adoption in theory adoption support or the adoption service the RAA or VA yeah. they know you yeah they know you as well as anyone can know you they've they've you know they've measured you and assessed you yeah but they also know the children and they also you would hope would have a an informed understanding of the nature of some of the children that they're they're adopting out so where were they in this I mean, I don't want you. To, I don't want to kind of like, yeah, yeah, get so heads they, on spikes. They were actually, <laughs> they were the only people that did offer us support, which right. is it's good. We were with a private agency. I don't know if you'd get that through your local authority. I, I can't say. Um, this lady, my brain has stopped kicked in now. This lady from Facebook said the only good thing that came out of her experience, and it was with an older child, was that she got support that she needed from the local authority. So that in mm. the back of my head was like, oh, we're going through all this. And it's traumatic, but we're going to get support from my daughter. We're going to get support from my daughter. And we've had silch and we're not going to get anything from them. So mm. Adoption Support Fund is kind of our, our only only option to kind of get that support in place for them, therapeutic play and whatever that looks like for us as parents. Um, but we, our private adoption agency um, advised us and sought advice themselves when they were advising yeah. us. So that was really helpful. We had decisions to make about one of the big ones for me was, do I want my five-year-old interviewed and assessed by the police? Hell no. Like, why would you put your child through that? But they came back to me and said, if you don't do this, that will be seen as um, a red mark on your case. And if she ever does it again, then the fact that you haven't worked with them will go yeah. against you. And and so they were really helpful in going away, finding that advice and coming back to us. And actually, we did have to get our daughter assessed and interviewed. It it you know it it did help, I suppose, down the line. Um, it it wasn't a great experience, um, you know, for me yeah. as a mum or for my daughter. But you know, it's good to have professionals there to give you advice who who aren't with the local authority, aren't with the police and aren't with the social workers and, and the school. So that was our independent support. And we did get, um, through the Centre for Adoption Support, we did get counselling, which was really good. And 
and I think um, when we decided on doing the sessions, um, they were always after like quite a difficult, um, whether it would be like a, a difficult meeting or, you know, a court. We obviously went to court and it was it was difficult. It didn't feel like at the time it didn't feel like, you know, we've just wasted six grand. What the hell have we done? That hasn't got us anywhere. What it did do was it, um, you know, we would have to wait six to 12 months to get a mobile phone looked at before we could be reunited as a family. Suddenly um, that was expedited and done in three weeks and the case was closed. So at the time, the court case, it was horrendous. We were like, what have we done? This doesn't feel like this was a good decision. We just wasted six grand we don't have. Um, And then three weeks later, they did check the phone. They suddenly and magically expedited it because a district judge said they had to, and it can be done when when you know they yep. get pressured um and and the case was closed so um yeah there was a lot that um I suppose the benefit of having that private agency having that support having mm. that counseling and also um I have an amazing sister-in-law who is a, a educational psychologist <laughs> like she was at the end of the phone all the time I was like what can I do to help my daughter what can I do here and like yeah I do need to get a quite a big present, I think, um, because having people who are professionals who do have that knowledge and have l- that experience, which are talking about, like she was able to say, I don't think the school have handled this particularly well because I work with schools all the time and I've never seen anybody expedite yeah. something so quickly. Gives you kind of that knowledge to go, oh, okay, right, that's interesting to know. Yeah, and it's not just you. It it feels like yeah, that's it's. It's not just a hunch. It feels like, yeah, there's something awry here or they've kind of mishandled yeah. it. Yeah, So I'm conscious I've taken up lots of your time. You seem like a, a woman on a mission. <laughs> That's definitely something my husband would say about me. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I don't mean that glibly and I don't know. I mean, we've just met for the first time now, but it seems like, is this something that you feel like you're, you want to kind of you speak out obviously you're speaking out now but kind of to help other families and to kind of sort of create change positive change yeah i am after reading so many procedures and policies you realize that um there is nothing written in there to protect children or parents going through false allegations if there's anybody listening to this who has any sway in the government crack on because we are not looking after the most vulnerable in our society. Um, I I am at heart a campaigner and I think that has driven me in this because injustice just fires me up and everything that's happened to our family has been unjust. Mm. Um, and while you can kind of understand that people are overworked and people are underpaid and people, you know, have got lots of case studies and caseloads, it, it doesn't having the personal aspect of coming home every night and and seeing that play out with two vulnerable children and watching them regress and and their yeah. emotional harm through this it just is a reminder that there are children at the end of all these procedures and all these policies and and they need safeguarding and that for me doesn't mean you know ticking a box and yeah I can have this phone taken away for 12 months and that's fine that isn't fine we're dealing with children who are vulnerable and and need to be reunited with their family and so uh, for the lawmakers you know if there's a commissioner who every year writes a report saying mobile phones need to be extradited and mobile phones need to be kiosked to ensure that happens quickly then this needs to be happening to children because you know they're the ones who are losing out on on time with their family and that has lifelong consequences for attachment and psychological harm um i'm i'm definitely a campaigner i'm not someone who likes writing procedures and i haven't got any sway in government <laughs> but i'm i'm praying that someone listening to this does and and can start changing some of the policies in place to make sure you know, keep on going back to that one in four, one in four, one in four foster carers go through this. There's a lot of children who are at the end of of policies which aren't there. You know, in you know, they're there to protect you, but actually, are they there to? Are they there? Are they informed? Are they trauma informed? Are they there to um, ensure your holistic needs are looked at in all of this? And currently, that isn't the case. That definitely does need looking into. I mean, that's a 
Yeah, I think there's a general upswell and in the likes of Fiona Wells and uh, there's a whole cohort of people who were kind of asking mm. good questions out. So um, so I guess we're going to watch this space, aren't we? Yeah. <laughs> watch this space, definitely, yeah. And, then, and just if you are out there and you're thinking, well, this will never happen to me, just read up on it because I think, you know, I had that opportunity in December to read that chapter on false allegations and I just skipped it just so it doesn't really affect me. And actually, it, it, you know, if your children have gone through trauma and ACEs and, and neglect, um, things crop up through their lives that are unexpected and we've got to be as informed as we can. We are, you know... Uh, their advocates and and we need to ensure that we are fighting their every corner and that means even against the police even against the social workers and even against the schools sadly sometimes so to be as informed as possible and to read up as much as you can and to have a safety plan in place for what would happen if I turned up at school one day and I'm told I can't take my child home you know, even things yeah. like knowing where your husband's going to sleep that night or who's going to pick up your child or just little things like that, that I think um, the unexpectedness of it made it very, very hard. Um, and so it, it's important to to think, oh, this could happen to me one yeah. day. So let's 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 think about what this could look like and what we can do to to ensure we're as equipped as we can as parents to deal with it. Yeah, I mean, that's a great message. I'm sure that we'll probably hear more from you. And if people, would you be happy to speak to people if people wanted to email the podcast and then me yeah, to pass yeah. those details on to you if people wanted to? Yeah, definitely. It's worth it's worth mentioning. It took me a long time to actually find support out there as well that the um, National Association of Therapeutic Parents have a helpful false allegation guide pack. It's called False Allegation Pack on their website, which is www naotp.com slash the ASP um, and they have a listening circle that helps also child law and family rights group online offer free advice um, and it's independent um, and it, it was very supportive and helpful for us um, and those are the three things that kind of if you're going through that this kind of situation those yeah. are the three things I would suggest they go to um, but yeah definitely uh able to take on any emails or phone calls to help someone else through this. Excellent. Well, we'll, we'll get those links off you and I'll put them into the show notes as well. Thank so you. People, people can have them as well. So, well, Emily, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate you being so open and honest. And I kind of wish you all well, really. seems like you're at the thank beginning you. of a, another journey. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> thank you very much. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Bye.